turning this evening to the book of Ezra, chapter 8 and verse 21. Ezra, chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. And our subject is the quiet hero of faith. It's uh, said that Ezra was no Elijah, and that's certainly true. It's also said that he was no David, and that is obviously true. He was uh, a scribe. <clears throat> you think of Ezra, and then uh, you wonder, does he belong in the Hall of Fame of heroes of faith? By nature, if you met him, you wouldn't think so. His contemporary prophet Haggai was similar in a way. Humanly speaking, the least impressive of the prophets. He was a prophet, a preacher, Haggai. I shouldn't think he could ever have been accused of preaching sermons that were too long. He's, we've, we've studied Haggai not very long ago, and he was the master of brief statements, said the most dramatic and also strangely comprehensive things in very few words and was mightily used of God. And Ezra is of the same cut, in a way. His name doesn't uh, lead you to expect a great deal if you set store by names, because he was named only Help or Helper, a very modest name. He's constantly called Ezra the scribe, because that's what he chiefly was, a scribe. Yes, an expounder and student of the law and an extremely accomplished one, but not a, a noisy man, a prominent man, yet trusted by the emperor, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, at court, he was uh, certainly an accountant. You read the book of Ezra. Now it's inspired, of course, and it's just what God intended, but it reflects the style of its author and how readily Ezra flies to genealogies and lists and things like that and the keeping of accounts. And he doesn't tell you that there was a such and such a sum gathered from Israel and contributed to by the emperor and so on. He tells you exactly what it was made up of, how much gold, how much silver, how many pieces, what they were like. And he doesn't do it once, he does it twice. And then, given half a chance, he refers to it in detail again. And it's the same with the genealogists and so on. 
uh, when he speaks of himself. He doesn't tell us much. He doesn't tell us any of his qualities or distinctives or accomplishments. He says nothing of that, but he was a priest and he establishes his priesthood and his pen runs away with him, you would think, and he's telling you his entire lineage back to Aaron. He's an accountant in his mind, always running into detail. And we expound his book, and maybe we shouldn't do this, but we pass over those sections. Some expounders make something of them, and there is great interest in them. But we tend to pass over them. And it's a view of Ezra, the scribe, the quiet man. And yet, he was the man for the hour. And he turns out to be a veritable hero of faith. Even mighty David's faith failed. I will now perish by the hand of Saul. And not just on one occasion, on several occasions. Whereas you never see Ezra waver. And it was the same with Elijah. As people say he was no Elijah. What doest thou here, Elijah? When he's on the run, as it were. From his commission, momentarily. And depressed. You don't see that in Ezra. The quiet man reminds me of when, you know, a boy and uh, you're gathering up fireworks ready for the great day. But you soon discover that to have ten bangers, well, it was so in the old days anyway, at least two of them would turn out to be damp squibs. But if you had the slow, showy things, you know, they were reliable. And they went on for some time. And it's like that sometimes with faith. The people who seem to want to be seen, I'm not suggesting David and Elijah were in that category, but the people who seem to want to be seen fizzle out when there's some great test of faith. And it's Ezra who holds the line when just about everyone else has gone wrong. So that's just by way of introduction that we deeply respect this man. Look at the first verse of the chapter. Well, there's the chief of the fathers. This is the genealogy of them that went up with me from Babylon. And there he goes in to one of his great lists. But let's come down to verse 15. And I gathered them together, all the people, the the, uh, really when you add up not only the numbers that are given but you make allowances for the women and the children they were getting on for if not more than 8,000 of them it's not an enormous number this is 80 years after the first uh, group of uh, Israelites had left Babylon to return to Jerusalem after the Cyrus edict this is 80 years later. There were 42,000 plus for the first journey. The second contingent is only 8,000 under Ezra. I gather them together to the river that runneth to a haver, 
Ahava was a river and a town also. So don't be confused. The name applies to both. And there abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests and found there none of the sons of Levi. Problem. They had already started the journey. And it was their first camp. And Ezra carries out a review, not of necessarily everyone, but certainly the vital people, the priests and the Levites. How could they uh, maintain the temple worship without sufficient numbers? No Levites. Not one. Astonishing. When the call had gone out to gather people from uh, Babylon to return to Jerusalem, no Levites responded. And you can only wonder why. There weren't many went with Zerubbabel 80 years before, 74. Pathetic number, really. Out of the several million of Israelites in captivity in Babylon, so many, even of the priests and Levites, had settled down and didn't want to go, didn't want to return. They must have had a very low view of their national purpose, God's purpose for Israel. They maintained the worship, these Levites, we're told. They believed they were God's people, but they'd lost sight of God's purpose for them. They belonged in Jerusalem, conducting the worship. They'd forgotten the cause of the captivity, coldness, an indifference that led in due course to idolatry, which led to their being driven out, taken into captivity. They obviously had a fairly low view of the necessity of the law of Moses, which laid down what they should be doing and where they should be doing it. They probably had a fear of going back pioneering all over again, redeveloping things, certainly a fear of what they'd heard about opposition and the neighbouring countries and the attacks and skirmishes. And some of them, I expect, repeated the old Levite problem that cropped up in the time of Moses, that they felt offended because their role, while it was a very celebrated role, was inferior to that of the priests. And there'd been a great rebellion, as you know, on that account. And maybe that was still around. We're not going back to work as Levites in the temple under the priests. We're not told that, but maybe all those things were at play. But there were a few, there were some among them, while they hadn't gone voluntarily, while they hadn't returned to Jerusalem with the other people, with the 8,000 on their own accord, they had enough heart to be persuaded. And when a a group was sent back to where there were many Levites living, 
to appeal to them and to tell them, you are badly needed. We cannot do this without you. We need you. It turns out there were 38. That's still a pathetic number. But there were at least 38 who were moved to respond. And they returned with the party and joined the main camp of the journey. There's a great deal to learn from that because those Levites are pretty much like us. We're very slow at times to see needs and respond to them. And we have to be persuaded. And it's the same with the ministry. There are many people, uh, if they feel a sense of responsibility, a call, young men sometimes, to serve the Lord. And they shrug it off and hang back. And they're fearful of it for a variety of reasons. But there is some heart in them. And happily some can be persuaded to stand out and to lay down their lives and to be ready to be proclaimers, Levites, if you like, for the Lord. But we're rather like these reluctant Levites. And it's interesting to see it brought out in the record here. But I go to verse 21, and my heading will be The Great Fast. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God. The purpose of that fast was affliction. They wanted to feel their need and their weakness, even in their hunger. They wanted to feel and to be able to express in prayer their need for the help of God, to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. Now, all our substance there, I would think, refers to the money they were carrying, the gold, the silver, the contributions to rebuild the city, to get the worship going and provided for in Jerusalem. It was a vast amount. And we've commented on its value before. But now they want a right way, the proper route, the best route, the safest route, and for the preservation of themselves, their children, and the treasure that they're carrying. So there's a fast and you note, they've got their Levites, at least some, 38. But they want to be guaranteed that they have the Lord. So they'll go to prayer. And here is uh, Ezra establishing these things and setting up these things and leading the way. Puts my mind back. 51 years to uh, when uh, my wife and I came to the tabernacle and there was a not very large group here and uh, well they'd got their proclaimer but what was the good of the Levites without the Lord so they had to go to prayer and it was the same with us we've got a proclaimer but that's nothing 
we have to go to prayer. And so we separated the prayer meeting. Both prayer meeting and Bible study had become amalgamated into one meeting. And uh, we went back in history to just before the war. The tabernacle had always had a separate prayer meeting. Always believed in that. But wartime brought it to an end. And you know it had never been resumed. Just amalgamated with the prayer meeting. How strongly Spurgeon spoke against that. And we separated the meeting out again and resumed the dedicated prayer meeting. That's vital. No good having a proclaimer without having the Lord and dedicated prayer. But then verse 22, the shame of Ezra. For I was ashamed... What a passage this is. I was ashamed. The Hebrew says, I paled, which implies shame, of course, in this context. So the translation is sound. But I paled, I was ashamed, paled at the very thought of asking the king for a contingent of military to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen would have been a very large company to look after 8,000 people to help us against the enemy in the way. They were going to go a 1,000 miles and much of it was going to be desert. But there were hordes of people who made their living raiding, trading caravans and travellers. These were dangerous times. You would be guaranteed to be attacked, ambushed, waylaid any number of times on a large journey. And word gets out somehow or other, though you can't imagine how, those bandits along the way would have known that there was a fortune being carried by these people. They would have been so vulnerable And yet, even in those circumstances, Ezra pales at the very thought of asking the king for an escort. And he won't do it. And he tells us why. Because he'd said to the king, halfway through verse 22, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. He seems to be saying we'd be worse off if we didn't trust the Lord, but we'll be protected. Where did he get this from? I've been asked that in the past. What was Ezra quoting? Well, he's not quoting anything. You won't find these words in any previous scripture. He's summarising the constant teaching of the scripture in these circumstances. It's never ending. God saying to Israel that if they avoid idolatry and they put their trust in him, then he will treat them as the apple of his eye. And as eagles spread their wings over their young and carry them on their wings... 
so God will carry his people and confound their enemies and protect them and keep them. Don't make chariots, don't use horsemen, don't go in for the latest accoutrements of war. If you only have faith, I will look after you in every battle. Send only infantry into the field and that will be enough. I will give them such power and deliverance and help That was always the code and the way with Israel. And Ezra knows that. And he knows that still holds good. So he's going to cross that desert and go into that desperate territory without any escorts. So we fasted. Verse 23, And besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us which is either an after-comment or, in some way, they were assured that God had heard their prayer. But that happens to us. When we prepare the way in prayer, we are very often granted very great assurance after such prayers that God will hear and God will answer. And he was entreated of us, was maybe an assurance they received at that very time, even before they made the journey. So they prepared in that way. These things really apply so closely to us. We seek a right way to serve the Lord. A right way for our people, for us, for every member of the fellowship, for the children, for the treasure that we're carrying. We pray that the Lord will help us so that the doctrine and the gospel will be protected and preserved and never adulterated. We pray for these things. We're on a journey. And we're carrying treasure. And we pray for our preservation and its preservation. You have it in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Same theme. Deliver us from temptation from within and from without. Deliver us from worldliness Deliver us from a love of ease, from coldness of heart, from vain distractions. Deliver us from all the things that will take away our zeal and our love for the Lord and our concern for souls and the gospel. And he does. And even if, in the theme of our second hymn, we may go through experiences and trials where the devil throws everything at us. And every Christian at some time and repeatedly through life may well have such an experience when your head is filled with doubts about your salvation and even doubts about the faith. And the worthwhileness of your Christian walk seems to disappear 
and you're almost under strong temptation to believe that you'd be better off as a worldling and everything is against you and you're assaulted with one thought after another, what do you do? Well, the scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And what is the best way of doing that? Appeal to Christ. Appeal to him to rescue you. Tell him that you love him and you depend upon him. Remember what he's done for you. Give yourself to him all over again. Appeal to him. And never forget this, that on Calvary's cross, the devil was utterly defeated. He was crushed. Now he's still there. And he won't face up to that. And he puts the thought out of his mind. And he convinces himself that he can bring us down. And that he can bring you down. And that he can bring the whole Christian experiment of God to an end. And he can claim some victory in the end. But nevertheless, because of Calvary, he is afraid of Christ. And he fears him. And if you appeal to Christ in moments of deep doubt and attack and trouble, and he interposes himself between you and the tempter, then the tempter will flee. And you will be relieved. And what's put it beautifully? When Christ comes onto the battlefield, says Isaac Watts, but hell shall fly at thy rebuke, and Satan hide his head. He knows the terrors of thy look, and hears thy voice with dread. And he does. He fears Christ, and Christ will come and aid you. That's the way you resist the devil. And back to Ezra. Look down to verse 23-22. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Well, there's the example in the fast of Ezra. But then the practical matter, verse 24, he provides for the treasure, and there's lessons from this. Then I separated 12 of the chief of the priests, Sherebiah. Sherebiah was also the name, another person, of the best of the 38 Levites that came with him. But uh, the chief priest at the time also bore the name of Sherebiah. And uh, Hashabiah 
and ten of their brethren. Twelve priests were selected to guard the treasure they were taking to Jerusalem to pay for the worship to be resumed and uh, uh, all other uh, works that were necessary to be put in hand. And then immediately Ezra goes into his accountancy mode in verse 25, weighed unto them the silver. But you can see from what he's doing that this is that there's going to be transparency and real responsibility. There's not one treasurer or two. There were 12 priests, including the chief priest, for such a vast amount of money You can't do better than that. They surely must be the people you can count on for some integrity. And the treasure is going to be before their eyes, literally counted out, every item weighed. And Ezra will tell them in these verses, this procedure will be repeated when this wealth is handed over to the custodians in the temple. So it's going to be a day of account. When journey's over, the four months journey is completed, all this counting and weighing is going to be repeated also. So it will be known if there's been any pilfering, if anything has disappeared, anything has been lost. And those 12 chief, the chief priests and his 11 helpers, they're responsible. And so there's the weighing and the amount and uh, it extends down there to verse 28 and I said unto them ye are holy unto the Lord the vessels are holy also and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering unto the Lord God of your fathers watch ye and keep them the verb is guard them till ye weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites and chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So took the priests and the Levites the weight of the silver and so on. And verse 31, they departed. So they're given a commission to keep the treasure and a warning that there's a day of count coming. So it is with us. Our service for the Lord, our time, is a journey. And at the end of the journey, we give account. We've got a commission. It's a gospel commission. And a body of doctrines to preserve, to keep, and to teach. When you read John 17, you see Christ himself on earth lived a perfect life to secure heaven for us and to set an example to his people but I read John 17 verse 12 and here is Christ giving an account to the father before his death and resurrection while I was with them in the world I kept them in thy name Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. And verse 4 reflects this. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Christ himself, who was equal with the Father, the Lord of glory, when he was our representative on earth, he gave account of how he discharged his responsibility, the keeping of his disciples, the keeping of his mission. If he kept account, doesn't it tell you that we will all give account? Each one who believes in Christ, same with the Apostle Paul, you see it in Acts 20, his sense of account Accountability and responsibility. I'll read from verse 26. You know these verses. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You'll see the element of account coming in. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Wherefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. But can you see the sense of accountability in those verses? The Apostle Paul is so conscientious as he looks back across his three years and all through them he's made sure that everyone in his charge, everyone in his flock, Every one of his elders, those people were taught, protected, prayed over, wept over, watched. The very words used for eldership in the New Testament, overseers, overwatchers, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Reminds you of those priests with all that treasure and an account lay ahead and their commission was to keep it and to guard it. So we have a commission. You have a commission with your family to keep the little ones, to keep your behavior pure and warm and right before them. We've responsibility in the church to watch over each other. The preachers have got a tremendously heavy responsibility. Have you kept the doctrine? Not kept it locked away in a box. Have you taught? Every point of it. 
Have you reviewed your syllabus constantly? Have you asked yourself, am I leaving things out? Have you taught in right proportions gospel and teaching? Have you considered all the different states and conditions of your hearers? The proud, the broken, the intellectual, the simple, forgive me using terms freely, have you fashioned and shaped your words so that there is something to challenge and to help and to lift up everyone? Have you had the post-mortem on every sermon? Are you watching for souls, noticing problems and people missing and people in need of help? You'll give an account. The day is past. You'll forget last year. You'll forget the year before. Those years won't be forgotten in the great day. So we all of us want to be conscientious and realize we have a commission and a responsibility. And it's pictured here in these great events. Do you think these are recorded just for the sake of history? No, they're recorded because the spiritual, spiritually equivalent situation is our situation. And so it is with Ezra. He leads them through these different things. We were talking about Ezra's shame. I couldn't ask the king for an armed escort having told him the Lord would watch over us. I wasn't going to take the support of flesh for my spiritual work, he said. But today we don't see it that way. Or at least there's the temptation not to. Today, Bible-believing Christians so often do take the king's armed guard the king's escort. They say, I can't do Christian work without music and drama. I can't do Christian work without entertaining the people to keep them coming. I can't do Christian work without... I, I want to, uh, the church to appear in the estimation of people uh, as rich and successful and not too dissimilar from the world. We need help, you know. This gospel wouldn't be naturally popular. So we need the flesh brought in to help us and devices and gimmicks. We have to avoid that so carefully and thrust that away and say with Ezra, I was ashamed to feel a need for fleshly aids when we say, we're reliant on the Spirit of God alone and the power of the Word and the power of the Gospel. That's the application of all this to us. So the wonderful passages, and our time is really out. But Ezra, to me, is a great hero of faith. Step by step, he leads them aright. Step by step, you come down towards the end of the chapter.
And uh, here it is in Ezra chapter 8 and verse uh, 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to, unto Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us and delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. It implies there wasn't one attack. That's amazing. Astonishing. And we came to Jerusalem. And they delivered the king's commissions. There was great celebration and praise. Verse 35 and all the offerings that were made. And as I looked at that verse, and I must come to conclusion, I thought to myself, I can see a deficiency in our prayer meeting. We ask, and that's right, an asking meeting. But I thought, do we thank enough? for answers given and blessings received. Is it as well as being an asking meeting a commemoration of answered prayer? When the journey was finished, what Ezra led them straight into was sacrifices and praise and worship. Is there enough looking back? in our lives, in our church prayer meeting, thankfulness for blessings received. The following chapter, which we won't look at tonight, chapter 9, is a tremendous problem. A great moral fall had come upon the people. The new contingent arrives, 8,000 people, and Ezra, new blood, all the support and the help and the money. But something shocking prevails among the people and has to be dealt with. We'll call it the Great Compromise. But that's for another time. Lessons from Ezra, simply called Help, Helper, but what a helper he was. Let's close.